and we're recording. All right, so welcome to a freeform um, <laughs> recording by Aleph Memtab, aka Amet, Shomer Man, and we're going to begin with counting the Omer for tonight. Okay. Adonai, Eloheinu Melakaolam, Asher Kidishanu Bimetotav, Etivanu, Al Sefirat Ha Omer. Hayom Shelosha, Ve Arbaim Yom, Shehem Shisha Shabaot, Ve Yom Echad Ba Omer, Chesed Sheb Malkut. Today is 43 days, which is six weeks and one day of the Omer. The Sephira of loving kindness within majesty. So welcome to the 43rd day of the Omer. I am now going to take my seat. Okay, so again, just letting everyone know this is a uh, open discussion. I'm going to get rid of some shadows on my face. Hopefully everyone can hear me okay. Gonna try not to be so loud to wake people up. So we'll see how this goes. Here. Get some charger set up. There we go. Okay. I don't look like Shadow Man over here. Okay, so I'm going to start with uh, what's actually occurring right now on the Hebrew calendar is known as Yom Yerushalayim. And that means the day of Jerusalem. So I'm going to actually open up with a commentary from Rabbi Trugman. Stand by here. Do a little trade. I have sources everywhere, so I'm going to try my best to uh, bring them together. All right, here we go. Okay, so this is from Rabbi Trugman Shlita. He says, the first Torah portion of the book of Bamibar, the book of Numbers, is usually read before the week of Shavuot. Therefore, it also falls in close proximity to Jerusalem Day, which occurs a week earlier. Jerusalem Day commemorates the day during the 1967 Six-Day War when Jewish uh, rule returned to the unified holy city for the first time in almost 2,000 years. So the first thing about this is incredible that we're reading Talim 67 during the counting of the Omer and Jerusalem Day occurs during the counting of the Omer every single year and particularly on the 43rd day of the Omer which we just counted. And this is a whole um, 
basically this is a whole appointed time of unifying and bringing everything back under one banner, which was the start of the exile, removing everything from under one banner. Namely, if we go back to um, the time of Babylon and even Assyria before that, we had the splitting of the kingdoms after King Solomon, where the northern kingdom and the uh, southern kingdom were split. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes in the south. And this particular time of Jerusalem Day back in 1967 was the first time in our history where there was the beginning and the sprouting of everything coming back underneath one banner, like one kingdom, like we were uh, during the time of the first three kings of Israel. So very momentous occasion. And it all corresponds to this week's Torah portion of Bamibar, because when we read Bamibar, we learn about the banners. And that's actually connected back to Parsha and more which I'm going to go to the Midrash Rabbah to read. It's Midrash Rabbah 32. And if you remember a passage about the son of the Israelite woman who went out and blasphemed, pick up in 32.4. It says, Rabbi Chia taught the Israelite woman's son went out from the passage of Yehusim which is a term that refers to pedigree and lineage. And it says, where he came to pitch his tent in the camp of the tribe of Dan. They said to him, what are you doing pitching your tent in the camp of Dan? He said to them, I am of the daughters of the tribe of Dan, which is interesting. He's talking about his mom. So we know that Judaism tracks your Jewishness through your mother. And we just, have, well, currently on the Gregorian calendar, it is Mother's Day. So to all the mothers out there, may you always know that you should be honored, not just on one day of the year, but if you don't receive any honor any time of the year, then there's a Baruch Hashem day for you to be honored. So that's amazing. But because um, normally in Judaism, the mother is esteemed a lot and particularly honored during the Arab Shabbat Seder where we do the Eshekayil. So it's a beautiful thing, just kind of like when we think about Thanksgiving and things like that. Well, that's for Jews every Friday night. So, you know, these beautiful things that uh, bring us together. I mean, there's a, these opportunities of appointed times. And so again, Jerusalem Day, bringing things together for Hashem. So particularly here, this one who goes out to blaspheme Hashem, he's claiming to be Jewish because his mother is Jewish. But what we're going to learn is that his father wasn't Jewish. And in Judaism, the way you know what tribe you belong to is through your father. So when we're looking at understanding our Jewishness, we have to have a Jewish mother and a Jewish father. So let's keep reading. It says, they said to him, it is written, the children of Israel shall encamp each man by his banner, according to the insignias of their father's household. And this comes from Parsha Bamibar, from Numbers chapter 2, verse 2, which implies not their mother's household. Check out the footnote. 
In other words, your lineage follows your father, not your mother. Your father was an Egyptian. As such, you have no claim to a portion in the camp of Dan. Now, throughout this whole section of the Benjamin Shabbat, it breaks down what happened all the way back in Parsha Shemot and into what caused the exile of Moshe, Moses, uh, from Egypt when he was in the king's palace. So he was walking out and he saw an Egyptian like abusing a Jewish man. And that Egyptian was actually having uh, extramarital relations with that Jewish man's wife. And the progeny from that forbidden relation was actually this child that we're talking about that was trying to be in the tribe of Dan. So all of this to say, when it comes to understanding uh, your place and where you belong, um, there is a clear pattern and a clear protocol already in pl place for that. So why did I want to talk about this person who blasphemed? Because here's something beautiful that the rabbis bring down. If I go into Midrash Rabbah 32.4, so I was reading 32.3, I apologize. Now I'm in 32.4. It says this, what was the status of this son? The Midrash explains the rabbis and Rabbi Levi discussed this issue. The rabbi said, even though there were no mamzerim, i.e. illegitimate children, which is, by the way, one of the things that the Mashiach is called illegitimate. So there's that. But anyway, it says, in there were no mamzerim in Israel at that time. This son was a mamzer. Rabbi Levi said he was a clear mamzer. So here's how they break this down. So at the time when the blasphemer was born, i.e. back in Egypt, it says when the, or before the giving of the Torah, when the laws of forbidden unions were given, there could not have been any actual mamzerim. That's from the Yafet Torah which, by the way, is the woman taken captive that we read about in Parsha Ki Tete. So if you go out to war, you see a beautiful woman. That's called a Yefe Toar, by the way. So anyway, interesting that they're talking about this with her. So they're saying, as far as the prescriptions of Torah, there was no opportunity for forbidden relations to actually occur because there was no announcing of that mitzvah. This is one of the things that we also learn in Judaism that a lot of times, uh, well, not a lot of times, back when we had the Sanhedrin, if you were uh, brought forth for accusations of violations of Torah, you come before the judges and they ask you, were you warned about this? And if you were not warned, then you're given a warning and then you go free. And then if you violate again, then there's further consequences. So Bezrat Hashem, none of that happens right because after you're warned and you understand the the gravity of the consequences of your actions then obviously you shouldn't repeat those think about the woman who was caught in adultery and everybody wanted to stone her yeshua says 
you know, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now, obviously, if you go through such a shaming and embarrassing experience like that in front of the creator of the universe, because Yeshua was the tool in the hand of Hashem that was used to create the universe, but that's for another time. Uh, you would think, okay, I don't ever want this to happen to me again. And not only that, what did Yeshua tell her? Go and sin no more. Because, you know, if you do this again, this is going to be a problem. But that's all aside from the fact that the Sota ritual was discontinued and there was no actual real Sanhedrin during Yeshua's time because they exiled themselves in 27 CE. What is traditionally the time that Yeshua is known to have been uh, engaged in his public ministry? That is considered to be around 30 CE. So before Yeshua even was publicly uh, ministering, if you will, uh, there, the Sanhedrin was like, we're out. So we can't convict anybody of capital crimes. Where do you convict people of capital crimes? Oh, you have to be the 70 plus one court and you have to be in the chamber of hewn stone. Where did they meet for Yeshua's capital punishment? Oh, in the house of Caiaphas. Oh, in the uh, Pontius Pilate uh, palace area. So clearly not in the right place and crucify him, crucify him by an angry mob. That doesn't count as a Sanhedrin. So all of that to say, we have a precedent here that this child should not have been called a mumser, but he was referred to as a mumser because our next point, he was a mumser according to the current Torah law, which even though the Gemara in Yevamot 45b rules that the child of a non-Jewish father and a Jewish mother is genealogically pure. For one second, real quick, he's a momser, but he's not a momser, but we're going to call him a momser. That's what we're reading. Talmud Yevamot 45b clearly tells us you're a pure Jew if you're born of a Jewish mother, regardless of the father situation. Let's just bring that to Yeshua for a second, because regardless of his attachment to Yosef, Miriam's husband, Yeshua's mother, Miriam is Yeshua's mother. Um, yeah, if he's born of a Jewish mother, he's Jewish. So there's that. Not that that needs to be an argument, but just pointing that out because he can't be illegitimate if he's born of a Jewish mother. Let's bring in some caveats, shall we? The rabbis here follow the dissenting view in Yevamot. So on one hand, we have a ruling that says, yeah, no momser, he's pure. However, here's some more opinions, and it's in the Talmud. So the Talmud is full of statements, opinions, back and forth, Here's your Mishnah, you know, and then going back and forth, right? So check this out. Alternatively, the rabbi's statement is to be understood. This son was considered like a mamzer. Now, does not Yeshua tell us you shall know a tree by its fruit? So if this child is truly a mamzer, even though in status, he technically isn't. Uh, the fruit of a mumser is going to be interesting because a true mumser, true illegitimate child, 
if they're walking in the footsteps of their father, which would be a non-Jew, that means they would abrogate Torah. That means they would not have any respect for Jewish things. So there's your momser who could say, well, hey, I'm in. I'm, I want to do this. My dad wasn't Jewish. Can't do anything about that. But then on the, the other hand, there is the uh, aspect of the momser who's like, whatever. I'm in, you know, just like this child was. Oh, you don't want to receive me? Oh, well, whatever. And then he blasphemes Hashem. So that's my point about the tree and its fruit, because he walked in the footsteps of his father, who was very against the chastity of the Jewish people. And we know from Parsha Kedoshim, matters of holiness are connected to how you are um, or how you are not modest with your sexuality. So this is why Parsha Kedoshim is full of the commandments about forbidden relations, because one who guards their um, modesty and their aspects of that sexuality, that's considered holiness. So Yosef has a hand raised. Yeah, uh, just uh, just commenting on what you're talking about, about the, the moms are and everything. So uh, just even I uh, was studying this with the Ramban Nachmanides. I don't know if you read what he said in the commentaries, but he, he also quotes what you quoted about Nev, uh, Yevamos 45b. But he also says that, um, yeah, the, 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 the mother and the father, even though the father is not Jewish, he, uh, the sages say that he's not Jewish in a, a national sense, like uh, Jewish not regarding the inheritance of the tribe, but he's actually, in a religious sense, a Jew. And so he's, the Ramban says he's actually a Jew. And this is what is amazing because most, most of the rabbis say that before the Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, that there was only Noahides. But the Ramban Nachmanides actually says, no, this is actually, he is actually a Jew. And, and the, he gives an example because... Esau was straight away, but Esau is still considered a Jew that he's back. He's welcomed back to the fold. And in a sense, he, the, the, the son of the mother, if he wants to follow the ways of Judaism, he, he, um, he accepts the same kind of acceptance that they did at Matan Torah with the circumcision and, and the mikvah of just deciding to go in the ways of his mother, but he has that option to either go in the ways of his father. So just uh, just how you've been bringing all this up, I thought it was fascinating learning the Ramban actually in Parsha Amor. So yeah, just kind of commenting on what you're actually talking about. Uh, yeah, very interesting stuff, bro. Well, that was a grenade launcher from... Uh, way over there and blowing up everything. So that's beautiful. So continuing on that strain of thought, um, it says here, he was viewed by the people negatively as a momser because his mother was the only Israelite woman to act immorally during Israel's sojourn in Mitzrayim. In Egypt, she was the only one. 
because, where did I read this? This is also in the Midrash Rabban. I want everyone to hold on to that statement that Yosef just mentioned about following in the ways of the mother. So in 32.5 of the same Midrash Rabbah, it says, it was taught in the name of Rabbi Nassan, a garden locked up and a gateway locked up. These two phrases refer to two forms of cohabitation natural and unnatural footnote says the israelite women in egypt were chased with regard to both so in other words this mamzer is claiming his jewishness based off of a mother who was abrogating her jewishness and the way that she handled her cohabitation uh, methods, if you will. So in other words, she was not chaste like the rest of the women were in Mizraim. That's important because when it comes to guarding our sexuality, which is a thing today, if you really look at the world around us, it's just kind of like sexuality, smexuality, whatever, do what you want, be who you are. It's okay. Let it out. Um, we find that when it comes to the Jewish nation, that this is where you know we really like as stark as circumcision is that is how the jewish nation is like that's how much separate and apart that we are and uh it's a it's a very high bar because in order to rise above the sexual standards of today's society uh, you pretty much have to be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh because it seems like there's such a spirit of folly that permeates the world that people are just kind of like, you know, there there isn't any uh, chastity. And if you are considered to be a person who guards their sexuality, i.e. you wait for marriage, you practice abstinence and things like that, you are also stopped at, which is the other thing that this momzer did. He scoffed at things of Torah, which is right here in the insights on Midrash Rabbah 32.3. It says that Rabbeinu Bakia said that the blasphemer went out from the passage above. That is, he scoffed at the institution of the Lechem Hapani, the showbread which was discussed previously, the message here is that one indulgence in one expression of mockery can drown out a hundred well-reasoned arguments. One scoffing can drown out 100 well-reasoned, you wanna call them insights, you wanna call them drops, you wanna call them uh, commentaries, whatever one scoffing can wipe all that out so no matter how many sources you bring if there's one scoff that's all it takes to topple the whole deck of cards if you will tour is not a deck of cards so please don't misunderstand that but you ever wonder why sometimes you have tr trouble reaching people trying to share and communicate 
you know, this is how it goes from the sages. This is what Abraham did. So I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Yeshua. You know, I'm going to keep the Yom Tov. I'm not going to keep all these other holidays. You ever wonder why that is met with such hostility, uh, such, um, what do they call it, obstination? Like it's very hindered, like it's blocked. I don't, I don't want that. I don't, re- I don't receive uh, anything you have to say. And matter of fact, we'll go one above that. We'll outright reject what you have to say and we'll make commentary that solidifies our standpoint of being against everything that the Taurus is. Well, such is the, the way of scoffing. So it goes on to say, in this way, scoffing at a single Torah law, principle, or lesson can topple one from the heights of inspiration to the depths of heresy. Why is that important? Because this same person who was trying to be in the tribes also stood at Mount Sinai when Hashem was speaking. You remember when Hashem said, Ano Ki, Hashem Melohekim, who took you out of the land of Mitzrayim, which was the first commandment, by the way. Uh, yeah, he was there. So while all of Israel was dying, their souls flying up to the throne of glory and Hashem going, nope, go back into your body. He was a part of that. He had that much inspiration with Hashem and he decided, you know what? That same Hashem who was the, my life and my resurrection, because you know, Yeshua says I'm the life and the resurrection. But anyway, um, he said, you know what? I, I blaspheme Hashem. Hashem should pierce himself. Hashem should curse himself. And all of that. So ultimately, that stemmed from this scenario. We're talking about a, a misplaced child that's going off of the ways of his mother who misplaced herself. So back to what Rabbi Trugman was bringing down with the connection here. He says the flags or the banners that are mentioned in the parsha Bami Bar, every man by his banner with the insignia of their father's house, they shall camp. This alludes to Jerusalem Day, Yom Yerushalayim, in several beautiful ways. So why did I go all the way back to that? Um, because it alludes to what we're talking about tonight. It is the beginning of Jerusalem day as we speak. The day started at night on the calendar. So I want to read some from the Baal HaTorim on this blasphemy thing. Here's what he says. This is commentary on 2411 of Leviticus, page 1265, if you have the uh, Baal HaTorim. He blasphemed means that this word appears twice in the Tanakh, each time with a different meaning. Here, words used, and he blasphemed the name. The second one, he pierced a hole in its lid from 2 Kings 12.10. This is in accordance with what is stated in Tractate Sanhedrin. Perhaps, as in verse 16 below, means he pierced the name. This teaches that he did two evils. What are the two evils? 
it says Maharam Me Rothenberg and Balhatorum infer from the Mesoretic note that the blasphemer of our passage not only blessed, which by the way is a Talmudic term meaning cursed. I know that's kind of weird, but that's what it means. So he not only cursed the divine name with the divine name, he also wrote the name on a parchment and pierced it with a sword. That's from the Etur Bikurim. So in other words, we talk about Mashiach, right? Being pierced. We talk about the tablets being pierced. That's why the letters are engraved on the tablets, the sapphire tablets that were broken and shattered and the letters floated back up the Shemaim. Isn't it interesting that Yeshua HaMashiach was accused of blasphemy? And this child who was considered a momzer was accused of blasphemy and suffered a death penalty. And it's all connected around this whole patrilineage of the Jewish people. So in other words, when they told Yeshua that he was a blasphemer, they're connecting it back to this parasha in the instance of, do you really know who your father is? Because Yeshua said, you'll see the son sitting at the right hand of the father in power. And they're like, okay, he's claiming son of God. Nope, time out. He's, uh, he's done. He's not a son of God. Can't do that. That's blasphemy. What more do we need? And they took him away, right? So this is interesting because Yeshua is the name of Hashem. How do we know that? Because what does the Zohar tell us? It says that the Torah is one name of Hashem and actually full of the names of Hashem. So that Torah was made flesh and dwelt among us, which means that that which is the container of the name of Hashem took on the form and the likeness of a person. So you got like a triple, double zoom zoom going on, which I don't even know what that means. But the point is, Yeshua was pierced like the epitome of blaspheming the name of Hashem. And we have in the Talmud, Gittin 56b, where the Romans break into the temple, namely a general named Titus, who comes in, Baruch Hashem, yeah, you can uh, feel free to jump back in if you're available. Um, Titus goes into the holy place and he pierces what is known as the parochit, which is known as the body of the Mashiach. So that's another aspect of blasphemy. When Yeshua Mashiach was crucified, that is an act of blasphemy. And it's interesting that it's all connected around this child of a wayward mother and one who wants to uh, encamp among the tribes of Israel, but he does so in a way of um, being an outright violation of the Torah, um, not accepting his place and things like that. So anyway, wanted to read that and just share about what blasphemy is. It's literally piercing a hole in the name of Hashem. Okay, so here's one of the ways this is connected to Yom Yerushalayim. It says, according to Hasidic teachings, the flags in the desert represent the individual's deepest longing 
for meaning and purpose in life. So you have a child of a mother who was violated by an Egyptian who wants to gravitate towards a purpose and a yearning in life that doesn't belong to him. That's pretty intense. But it goes on to say, um, this is the deepest longing for meaning and purpose in life, his or her heartfelt desire. The phrase, his flag, which is diglo in Hebrew, has the numerical value of 43. What day of the Omer is it right now? 43. This day of the Omer is connected to the banners and the flags that we're reading about in this week's Torah portion, which means what are we longing for and what is our purpose? Not only that, where is our place? And as we're discovering this, we are looking at this right now uh, in, in the parshas, you know, in the parshiot. So we go back to more where we have the blasphemer. Here's the thing. Never once did he ask, okay, since I can't be in the tribe of Dan, where else can I go? You know, and the Talmudim of Mashiach say the same thing. Where else can we go? Only you have the words of life. You know, it, it's really beautiful to think about the 12 Talmudim of Mashiach Yeshua that never once do you hear them talking about, well, I think I want to be in this tribe. I want to be in that tribe. Because with all the dispersion that's been going on, and now bringing this to a current context, we don't really know tribes today. Even uh, Rabbi Abraham Greenbaum Shlita brings this down in his commentary for the Parashat. People think, well, I'm from the tribe of Judah or I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And they literally say that's the Ashkenazim and the Sephardi. So if you belong to one of those uh, new socks is what they call them, traditions, um, the way in which they pronounce words and different customs like who eats beans and rice on Pesach or not. Uh, that's Ashkenazi Sephardi, which are connected to Yehuda and Benjamin, so Judah and Benjamin. But anyway, all that to say, if you find yourself in a predicament like this child of this uh, Jewish woman who was violated by an Egyptian, wouldn't it be more... Um, you would think logical, right? But bitterness does things to us where logic goes out the window. You would think, okay, Moshe, so I don't belong in the tribe of Dan. Where do I go? Because why is that important? Just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Pesach Sheni, which was a group of people who could not bring the original Pesach during the month of Nisan because they were in a state of impurity. Since that was the case, they went to Moshe respectfully and said, what can we do? Can you go talk to Hashem for us? The Mamzer didn't take uh, a lesson from that, right? You know, so even as we may wonder, what tribe am I from? Do I even get to be called a Jewish person, right? Any of these questions that may come up, today is a day that is a, a, a momentous occasion to think about these things because whether or not we are, I would say, legally for lack of better terms, affiliated with any tribe. If we end up getting in a predicament where we don't know, our, our only option is, well, I'm cleaving to Hashem and he's going to put me where I need to go, right? Because really, who do we have to depend on 
not, none but our Father who is in Shemaim. Even Tractate Sota tells us about this, that in the time before the coming of Mashiach, things are going to be crazy and chaotic, but our only hope is in our Father Hashem. So back to Rabbi Trugman, here's the other part I wanted to bring down. I'm just going to bring down the whole thing. Okay, Song of Songs 2-4 talks about, he brought me to the house of wine and his banner over me is love. So again, Diglo, his banner, that is the Gematria 43, which connects to the 43rd day of the Omer, which is Yom Yerushalayim. Let me go ahead and take it to a uh, commentary that I haven't gotten to yet, but it's in the queue. Yerushalayim is the mother of every Jew. This is crazy because not only is that uh, Isaiah 54, but that's also in Galatians chapter 4. Because Shaul Hashliach says, Paul the Apostle, he says, Jerusalem is the mother of us all. <laughs> so anyway, if you're wondering if you have a Jewish mother, uh, do you belong to Jerusalem, right? So anyway, <clears throat> Hashem says, here's my banner over you, and it is Ahava, it's love. So we know the, the banner is the, the purpose and the yearning. Well, what is the love? The love is the doing of the mitzvot. So what's interesting is Hashem says, your purpose and your belonging to me is your doing and observance of the mitzvot. Not to mention the way that we do the mitzvot, by the way, is through love. This is the purpose of Yeshua Mashiach. He stirs us to love and that love overflows into obedience. So here's the thing. What is that house that he brings us into? The house of wine has the same gematria as rings, i.e. the signet ring that Pharaoh uses to give to Yosef when he appoints Yosef as the ruler over the whole entire world. The signet ring has the same gematria as house of wine. Here's the thing. The sages read the book of Song of Songs as a divinely inspired allegory symbolizing the love between God who is the lover, and the Jewish people, who is the beloved, i.e. God is the husband, Israel is the wife, the Jewish people is the wife, says, however, the house of wine in this verse has been interpreted in several different ways. The sages interpreted it as either an allegory for the holy temple or the Torah. So here's the thing. We're talking about Yom Yerushalayim. Our prayer, hopefully, as we pray with Spirat HaOmer every night, Hashem, can you rebuild the temple? Please bring us in from this exile. Hashem says, I'm going to bring you into the house of wine. Just read it in Shira Shireen, Song of Songs. Once we're in the house of wine, he's going to put a banner over us, and that banner is love. So what am I getting at? The house of wine, the signet ring, 
is the Torah. It is the temple. We don't have the temple currently, but the Torah is always available. Getting underneath the Torah is getting underneath the banner of Hashem, regardless of who your natural lineage of parents are, which means you would actually be brought into a place among Israel. Because in the wilderness, there was a big group of people that came out of Mitzrayim with the Jewish people, and they weren't tribe affiliated, but yet when we get to Parsha Bamibar, everyone is given their place. So, <clears throat> going on, he says here, furthermore, since the Hebrew word for wine has the numerical value of 70, the verse has also been read to allude to the 70 archetypal nations that were welcomed in the first two temples. Okay. Thus, this verse in Song of Songs can also be read as a prayer that God would usher in the era when his love will encircle us and flutter above us like a beautiful banner and all the peoples of the earth will recognize and praise him. Thinking about a mother who hovers over her chicklings or her, uh, her nurslings, right? Yeshua says, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, how I long to gather you in as a mother uh, wants to gather in her, her nurslings. So the whole connotation of the 43rd day of the Omer is about being gathered in, being brought in. And regardless of what your lineage may be and things like that, um, Hashem still desires everyone. So <clears throat> where I want to take it to now is this passage in Isaiah. This is what it says, Isaiah 54, 1. Sing out, O barren one, who has not given birth. Break into glad song and be jubilant. You who have not been in birth travail. The children of the desolate, which is Jerusalem, will outnumber the children of the inhabited one, says Hashem. Here's the footnote or the commentary. Isaiah poetically described the glad song that will be sung when Hashem brings the Jewish people back to Zion in the final redemption from exile. Isaiah now continues that joyful account. He addresses Jerusalem, Slika, as if it were a barren woman who suddenly becomes the mother of countless children. So too, the holy city and the holy land have been bereft of their children for so long that it seemed as if they had never given birth. The joy of the redemption will be indescribable. In this chapter, we see Hashem's everlasting love for his people in their exile, whether they are righteous or sinful. Again, I can't stress enough that this mumser was like, he, he thought himself righteous, but he walked in the ways of sin. The beauty with Hashem is whether you're righteous or whether you're a sinner, Hashem still desires you. 
So here's the commentary on verse one of chapter 54 of Isaiah. Although Jerusalem had been desolate for so long, like a widow bereft of her husband, the day will come when its residents will outnumber those of the world's other cities, i.e. those of Edom, aka Christianity, Rome, which how many people in the world are Christian today? Right? Christianity seems to make up a huge chunk of the world. The Western hemisphere of the world seems to have a wide influence. Jerusalem seems to have like this much influence. Well, in the final redemption, that's going to be overturned. Because number one, a lot of people who don't see themselves as Jews will actually be revealed that, oh, by the way, you're Jewish. Later in Isaiah, not only we find that out, some people are going to find out that they are Cohen Gadol, which is like going from, I don't know anything about Torah, to you better know everything about Torah, because <laughs> the Cohen Gadol is his status and role and everything. But anyway, so Jerusalem is our mother. So I want to go over to this Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1. Page 268, back up to 267, where it starts. It says, it is a commandment from the biblical tradition to abide by all community customs, as it is written, hear my son, your father's instruction, do not forsake your mother's Torah, Proverbs 1.8. It is taught that the father in this verse refers to God, while the mother refers to the nation of Israel. Next point says, our mother's Torah is the Torah created by the Jewish people themselves, namely their religious customs, i.e. all the rabbinic stuff. It is taught, therefore, a custom of Israel is Torah. Moreover, just like the Torah itself, a custom is binding for all generations. Footnote. The word mother is ima. It is said to denote one's nation. So when we talk about who is our mother, what nation do we belong to? And then it says the word for one's nation is called uma, taking the word ima and using a homiletic. Then it goes on to say, some say that the taking of the final cough of the word your mother to be 500, the numerical value of imka, which is your mother, in this verse is the same as that of Israel. So the gematria, the numerical value of the word ima is uh, 42, which you think about everything that's con connoted with 42, right? But if you change the last letter of Ima to a final kaf, you get Im Ka, which is your mother. The gematria of your mother is the same gematria as Yisrael. So Israel being the mother, Jerusalem being the mother, the Torah being our mother. Okay. Take it to master plan. Beautiful chapter, chapter 16. 
page 61 wants to start off talking about motherhood. It says animal life by its very nature is egoistic. Ego, yes, egoistic. So animal life is by its very nature egoistic. So self-centered, right? But in nature, you see the mother of each species. Now, obviously seahorses aren't included because when the mother seahorse gets pregnant, she gives the babies to the husband. That's a different story. Anyway, <laughs> motherhood is one point at which altruism intrudes into the self-contained world of nature. A mother gives up part of herself for the existence of another being and devotes care and concern for its well-being. So in other words, with the Torah, with Israel, with Jerusalem, with the temple being our mother, what was offered up on our behalf for the sake of our well-being? Our mother. <laughs> you know, because the Torah that was made flesh was offered up for us. The temple was destroyed in our place. Uh, just to name a few things. So... This all is centered around motherhood. What mitzvot exist in the Torah that teach us about the sanctity of motherhood? Well, Leviticus 22, 28, you shall not slaughter an ox or a sheep and its young on the same day. Deuteronomy 22, 6 through 7, I'm going to paraphrase it. You happen across a bird's nest. The mother bird is sitting on the eggs. You should not take the mother bird with the eggs, send the mother away, then you can take the eggs, right? Uh, Exodus 23, 19, Exodus 25, 26, and Deuteronomy 14, 21. Three verses that all say what? You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. This is where we get the understanding of separating meat and dairy. These three mitzvot teach us about motherhood. So here we go. It says on page 62, you shall not slaughter a mother and a young on the same day. This is one of the coolest things. Yeshua was offered, not us, but him being offered is, is accredited to us as if we were offered, just like you don't slaughter the mother with her young. So Yeshua was like, well, I can't be slaughtered and the Jewish people be slaughtered. It's either them or me. Well, I choose me. Hashem says, well, I'm going to not destroy the Jewish people, so I'm going to destroy the temple. You know, so, I mean, it's just this beautiful thing. Now, let's go even crazier. Today, many commentaries tell us Isaiah 53 is about who? Israel, not who? Mashiach, right? The commentaries on that for the Isaiah 53 team Israel says that Israel is being offered up on behalf of the world through the fact that Israel has to endure exile. So in other words, Israel becomes the mother of the entire world 
like we're reading about here, because we're being offered up, i.e. being placed in exile for the sake of doing what, does the Talmud tell us? Making converts. If you see Israel going into exile, it's for the fact of making new babies, making new Jewish children. The root of the word Torah is hara, H, or not H, Hebrew letters. <laughs> hey, Resh, hey, or hey, Aleph, Resh, Aleph, hey, which is hara. Hara literally means to be pregnant. So the Torah itself is considered to be pregnant. Crazy part, right? Yeshua is the Torah, the hara made flesh and put in a woman. So obviously she's going to get pregnant, right? Put the Torah in there, becomes pregnant. So put the Torah in the nations. What do they give birth to? Jews. There is fruit. Get you some. Okay. Trying not to yell because people are sleeping in my uh, premises over here. Uh, anyway, so you have this whole fact that you have the mother has to be separated from the child if you're going to slaughter one of the two. Why is this the case? It says... Um, this is understandable because it is at the moment we are taking this animal into our diet. The Torah wants us to be aware that an animal is not just meat. So first of all, the way this is written, it's like the Torah wants to teach you something, which if you listen to many lectures from rabbis of today and of the past and other commentaries, even in different books, it always uses the Torah as a teacher. Like the Torah says, the Torah is teaching, the Torah is speaking. So yet, those of us who know Yeshua HaMashiach, we go, Yeshua said, Yeshua was teaching, Yeshua was speaking. Well, we're reading this right here on page 62 of Master Plan, which you could literally substitute and says, Yeshua wants us to be aware that an animal is not just meat. The implications of that statement, because many people think, I'm just going to eat a burger, I'm just going to eat some chicken, it doesn't matter where it came from, it doesn't matter how it's slaughtered, is it kosher? Doesn't matter, let's just go through the drive through let's just eat it. Well, there's parameters to that. It says, it is a living being, we must respect it in those qualities, which in some case, or which is in some sense, a reflection of human qualities. Even if the animal knows nothing of it, it would be heartless of us to slaughter mother and young in one day. So in other words, the Torah is teaching us to have a heart, compassion. You ever wonder why Yeshua cried tears you know uh as he was being offered up as he was being beaten and whipped and mocked when he looked and lamented over jerusalem because he knew about its coming destruction then you have 
the next statement here. It says, even if the animal knows nothing of it, it would be heartless for us to slaughter the mother and his young on one day. When our father Yaakov wanted to express the extreme cruelty of Esau, he said, he will strike me down, mother with children. Isn't it interesting that the said to be progeny, the descendants of Esau, which are the Edomites, the Romans, um, they don't care about what's slaughtered and how it's slaughtered. And uh, was it the mother and the child or, you know, anything like that? Subtly, what this is saying is if you're going to be an outright violation of this particular commandment, what you're training yourself for on a subconscious level is to be heartless, is to have no compassion, is to have no self-restraint. In other words, everything about motherhood, throw it out the window. Don't care about mothers. Get rid of it. Which means take it to Jerusalem Day. Who really is esteeming this day? Who really is caring about counting the omen? Who really cares about the rebuilding of the temple? So in other words, going on to the next statement, the educative power of the mitzvot can protect the Jewish soul from such inhuman tendencies. So long as the mitzvot are practiced. So sending away the mother bird comes up next. Page 63, when taking from God's creation from your hum, for your human needs, think of its wildlife. If its mother instinct <clears throat> is stronger than its fear and it continues to fulfill its motherly function despite your approach. So I skipped a few statements and it was basically talking about the fact if you approach the mother bird sitting on her eggs and the mother bird doesn't fly away, she's like, no. It's my territory. I'm not going nowhere. The Torah wants you to know you cannot take those eggs. The mother bird's like, no, this is happening. These babies are coming, right? So it says, if the mother's instinct is stronger than its fear and it continues to fulfill its motherly function despite your approach, you are not to exploit its loyalty to its young by taking it together with its chicks. Do not appropriate it at the moment of its service to its species. So going down, so I want you to hold on to that because the not slaughtering the mother and the young in the same day, the sending away the mother bird, how is that all connected to separating meat and dairy? Here it is. The oral Torah teaches us that the kid and the mother's milk in the verse are only examples. So the way the Torah puts the mitzvah of separating meat and dairy, i.e. not slaughtering the mother and the child in the same day or sending away the mother bird, it says, here's an example. Don't cook the kid in its mother's milk. So it says the Torah's prohibition extends to any meat of cattle, sheep and goats and any milk of these species. The reason for the Torah's choice of these particular words will be discussed a little later. Because there are other ways we could have said that, right? So then it goes on to say, rabbinic legislation includes also venison and fowl. 
in the prohibition, since these are commonly referred to as meat. Page. There must be some great lesson. What does the Torah want to teach us? What can it be? Torah is trying to arouse our pity. Says, but since the oral Torah tells us that the intention is to prohibit any, prohibit boiling any meat of the kosher beast and any milk of the same, we must ask why the Torah chooses to express it in that way. It would seem the Torah wants us to look beneath the surface of things, become aware of their inner significance. We should be able to see the kid in the flesh of the adult. So in other words, the offspring of the mother, you should see the child inside the mom, which means if you're okay with not separating meat and dairy, what you're actually saying is I don't care about what the dedication and the sacrifice of motherhood is, which would extend to not caring about the Torah, not caring about the temple, not caring about Jerusalem, and not caring about Israel, because they're all connected. So anyway, uh, what we're made in his image, we're to be imitators of Hashem, and the Torah is the image of the invisible Hashem. So when we look at the Torah, we should be able to see the Torah in Hashem, which means when we look at Yeshua, we should be able to see Yeshua in Hashem. Just like we're able to see the child in its mother. Torah saying this is the importance of separating. So the mother's milk and says in the milk carton that we buy at the supermarket. We should be aware that when it produces milk, the animal diverts part of its resources away from its selfish needs to meet the needs of emergent new life. So now it, the plot thickens because the this prohibition is like, do you even take into consideration what it takes to bring about newness of life? So being an outright violation of this is saying, do you care about making converts? Do you care about children having parents? You know, things like that. Because when we look at newness of life, <clears throat> you have to have that, that nourishment, right? To, to bring forth that life, to help it grow and things like that. One of the crazy things, do you truly care about the child in the womb? That's a very, very beautiful statement to make because that has to be asked. So when we look at, let's just stick with the example of converts real quick. With a convert, it takes a lot of nurture, especially if there's the sensitivity, especially if there's the lack of education, especially if there is the level of the capacity to learn, right? You got all these different factors. Like when people have children, right? When you have children in your family, each of your children, they have different things that um, 
that come easy or not to them. It's the same thing with converts. <clears throat> Some converts may come in blazing fire. They get it. Tell them one time. Some converts come in. Well, I'm here. I'm not sure if I want to be here or not. I'm here, though, you know, and other people may just be like, whatever, I guess. I don't know. I'll just I just want to not go to Gehenna. Sometimes that happens because, you know, with the whole aspect of intermarriage, um, you know, hey, it's a cute Jewish girl. I'm going to marry her or hey, it's a cute not Jewish guy, but I'm going to marry him, you know, and these people get brought into the, the fold. And it's just like so they're going to shul. They're, you know, keeping the Shabbat or whatever vicariously through their their uh, spouse or, or however that goes. And it's just like, but but you're an outright violation. I'm not sure how this works. But we just talked about here in Isaiah 54, verse 1, in the commentary. Hashem's everlasting love for his people in their exile, whether they are righteous or sinful. So even the thief on the crucifixion stake next to Yeshua at the last minute of his life, Yeshua somehow had compassion for this guy. So there's that. Probably because Yeshua separated meat and dairy. Literally, that's what this mitzvah teaches us. <laughs> we can have so much compassion for people that even in the midst of like, this is blatant error. Like, dude, you're a criminal. It's like, oh, you know what? I forgive you. Come on, let's go to Ghana. I'm just, I don't know what to do with this information right now. It's just crazy to me. Because sometimes I wonder, how do Yeshua have so much compassion for people? But the Torah itself is compassion, right? Because it's considered to be a mother. And it's just like, if you understand the mitzvot of mothering that the Torah teaches us, if you understand the teaching of Jerusalem itself, Jerusalem is like the highest point in the world. The main uh, group of mountains in Jerusalem is called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah comes from the word more, which means teacher. So literally teacher mountain is Jerusalem. And that is the root of Torah. So you have this compassionate teacher, mother type figure. And it's just like, regardless of who they are, there's this, this like super deep compassion. Because what else does Shaul Hashliah tell us? While we were yet sinners, Mashiach offered himself up for us. So going on, it says, this too is one of the points at which altruism intrudes into the natural universe. It is this point of unselfishness that the Torah wishes, to, wishes us to respect. This is the Torah's passage. The milk that was created by God to nurture the new generation may not be used to boil our own pleasure, the flesh that milk was created to nourish. So Hashem was like, I need this particular substance to be used. Yes, kill the ego. I need this substance to be used to grow and to nurture. But when you mix feed and dairy, you're saying the nurturing substance that was used to grow 
this other part of my meal, I'm actually going to undo that. So I'm going to unmother this meat that I'm consuming and therefore take what God said should bring life and use it to bring death. Interesting, because I can't put my finger on it, but I think there's teaching in the world that exists today that says that which brings life actually is what brings death. So those who are per, uh, those who are professing that teaching uh, usually aren't people who separate meat and dairy. So that makes sense, I guess. But um, when you're eating meat, there's a level of pleasure that's connected to it. This is why the sages tell us, if you really want to celebrate the Shabbat, if you really want to celebrate the Yom Tov, do milk or sleek, do meat and wine. These things bring such a deep level of pleasure to us. So if you want to throw in milk with your meat, you're basically saying my pleasure is not just going to be by my bounds. My pleasure is going to extend over into telling Hashem what he needs to or not needs to be doing. Because now you're setting yourself up as what Hashem's creation is meant to do. In other words, the milk that you said was supposed to nourish, I say that's to be used for my own pleasure and desire, however I want it to be used. It's pretty, uh, pretty messed up. So it says in the eyes of the Torah, to do this would be perverse. It would be an unacceptable reversal of function. The function of milk is not to be used in the slaughtering process of the child. It's actually meant to be used in the emerging of the life of the child. That, I mean, it, it probably sounds weird to the ear, but hopefully it makes sense that the whole concept here of not cooking a kid in its mother's milk, sending away the mother bird, not uh, slaughtering the mother and the child in the same day for the Corbin Oak. Uh, hopefully that's making sense that you're basically undoing Hashem's intent for how he brought forth life into creation, which would extend over to so many different uh, borders that you would undo the purpose of the Torah. You would undo the purpose of the temple you would undo the purpose of the encampments in the wilderness. And what does that lead to? We just talked about one example, blaspheming. Okay, so that was in Master Plan. Here's a little something I found in the middle of uh, trying to get ready for this video. You know the... Uh, saying that uh, my food is to do the will of my father. Yeshua says this. He also told the adversary that uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but off of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the father. That's in Parsha Behar. I know. It's crazy. This is by Yikra Rabbah 
I'm just going to read the opening of this section. It says, Rabbi Simone, in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, states four expositions regarding acts of kindness. The first exposition, who was it who did an act of kindness for those who did not need it? Abraham did such an act with the ministering angels, for it is written, he stood over them beneath the tree and they ate. Genesis 18, 8. But did they really eat? Why? They were angels and angels do not eat. So that's the context. They're talking about acts of kindness in the context of people who don't need it. So in the insights, it says bread of angels and food for the soul. It says, we begin with the question from Abraham's urgent instructions to Sarah, hurry, need, and make cakes. In the verse cited by our Midrash, it is apparent that they had not prepared any bread in advance. This is a surprising omission considering Abraham, the eager as always to help anyone in need, had been sitting at his front door waiting for guests. In other words, the commentary is saying, if you're waiting for guests, wouldn't you be prepared for when guests show up so that you don't have to like rush around and do things? But aha, Abraham was like, this is fresh. I'm making stuff fresh. I'm not going to leave it sitting under heat lamps and being like, oh, somebody shows up since they can eat this. Like, no, we're going to make it fresh. One of the things I forgot to read, goodness, one of the reasons why the blasphemer blasphemed the, the name of Hashem was because the showbread in, on, in the temple, uh, he said, nobody's going to want that stale bread because it got put out a week ago. So the 12 loaves of bread that are sitting on the showbread table in the holy place, they are baked and made fresh and put in place on Erev Shabbat. They're not consumed until the following Erev Shabbat, which is eight days later. You would think bread sitting in the holy place on a table, uh, it's probably going to go stale within a few hours. Well, that bread remained as fresh and as warm and hot as when it first got put on that table. So in other words, the showbread table is supernatural. So you would think here with Abraham, he's in a tent or Sarah has a tent. She's making bread. Sarah's tent and the temple are always equated. Things that happened in the tent of Sarah also happened in the tabernacle and the temple, i.e. the pillar of cloud that hovered over it, the, uh, the freshness of the bread, the candles that stayed lit, you know, like the Western lamp of the menorah that was always lit, the H. Tamid. <laughs> those things happened in the terror of Sarah. Those things happened in the tent of Sarah. So in other words, there should not have been a concern. Sarah. Please make some bread. It's time, you know, we're going to have some guests coming at some point during the day. But I know if you make bread, babe, you know, it's going to be fresh no matter what time they show up. Right? That could have been a thing. But Abraham was like, nah, don't worry about it. When they get here, we're going to need to real quick, though, make some bread. <laughs> so, says, it 
we find out in later times, it was a standard practice in Israel for women to bake bread early in the morning in anticipation of the beggars who would be making their rounds. Bava Kama 82a. What does Proverbs say? The Eshekayo, right? Which, by the way, the Eshekayo, Proverbs 31, starting at verse 10, this is Sarah's eulogy, according to Midrash Tankuma. So, in there, it says, <laughs> love this. Proverbs 31, verse 20, she spreads out her palm to the poor and extends her hands to the destitute. And that is for the letter Kaf. So from Aleph to Tav is the Eshekayil blessing that the husband recites over his wife. And actually fathers could technically recite it over their daughters and prayer that they would become an Eshekayil. That's one of the things I do. Um, I have a few people that I consider spiritual daughters that I pray for. So I recite this, uh, this desire that Hashem would make them an Eshekayu. Uh, don't particularly pray this over them, but just saying as far as having in thought and in mind, uh, when you're blessing the daughters, I say, you know, may Hashem make them an Eshekayu. And in other words, may they embody these passages. But anyway, when we're talking about Sarah making bread for the visitors that show up. Technically, as far as customs go, it was developed later that the woman would make bread so that when the beggars, the destitute would come, she could extend her hand to them and make bread. So it says, why did Abraham, that paragon of hospitality, not adhere to this four-sighted practice because remember Abraham observed the whole Torah before it was given so he followed all the rabbinic laws and things like that so how come he didn't follow this custom of hey let's make some bread at the beginning of the day so that when the beggars show up we have something for them in other words anticipating hospitality now in the writings of Hebrews it says that um, when you practice hospitality, you could possibly entertain angels. The epitome of the example of that is Genesis 18. Abraham was so hospitable that he literally entertained angels. So, goes on to say, Zohar Beshalach 62b. We read of a certain sage who would instruct his household, i.e. his wife. Let's just talk about that for a second. In Judaism, the household is considered to be the wife. So when Yeshua says, you and your household will be saved, or when we read those things in the gospel accounts and Acts and in the letters about the household being saved, that's the wife being saved. The sages tell us, how does the wife attain eternal life? She sends her husband to the study. She sends her ch children to the study place, the Bet Midrash. And Temple Taj, she sends them to the temple, you know, things like that, whenever those things are possible. So in other words, causing her husband 
or her children to be connected to the Torah actually brings eternal life to the wife. Just as a side note. <clears throat> but anyway. So he instructs his household to delay in preparing any food until after his morning prayer. So we're reading an instance right now that says, I want you to wait until I do prayer in the morning. After I do prayer in the morning, please make some bread. It says, when it will be granted from on high. The sage knew, of course, that the basic ingredients of the day's meals were already in the house, but he also knew that in addition to the physical aspect of food, which nourishes the body, there's a spiritual aspect, which nourishes the soul. He's like, I know we have physical food in the house, but we need to get the spiritual food first. In other words, when Yeshua was at the woman, when Yeshua was with the woman at the well, the disciples went off to go get bread and supplies. They show back up. Yeshua was like, hey, where you guys been? And they're like, hey, we went to go get food. And he's like, I got bread you don't know about. And I'm like, who gave him bread? That's, here it is right here. <laughs> because there's the physical bread, but then there's the spiritual bread. And Yeshua says in that same context, my food is to do the will of my father. So nourishment of the soul. <clears throat> says the scripture states not by bread alone does man live but rather by everything that emanates from the mouth of god does man live deuteronomy 8 3 that spiritual component flows into the food only when it's prepared for consumption and thus holding off such preparation until after praying can increase the spiritual content of one's meal. Why did the sages think it was a good idea to have blessings before we eat? Because you can have your physical food, but if you pray first, you bring down spiritual food. So that's where that comes from. Which means when Yeshua is saying, my, I don't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father, my food is to do the will of my Father. He's saying the spiritual power and ability behind everything that I physically do comes from my Father. So when you see me healing, that's done through my Father. When you see me teaching or speaking, that, that's the, the spiritual food. So my words are a physical conduit for these spiritual uh, energies or activities, if you will. So, Abraham had a similar consideration in mind. In his case, however, it wasn't by prayer. So, in other words, in order for Abraham to bring down spiritual things, it, he didn't have to wait until after he prayed. But obviously, we know Abraham prayed, right? It says, the merit of his extraordinary hospitality, which, by the way, is under chesed, loving kindness, compassion, i.e., the mothering that we've been talking about, says that elevated the food 
So the spiritual nourishment for the soul came down by Abraham's chesed, by his willingness for hospitality. And it says, and because his food was so spiritually enhanced, it had the capacity to draw people close to their creator and hence was a powerful asset in Abraham's campaign to teach his fellow men about the one God. So when Abraham was able to make souls, again, here's a whole birthing drop, right? New life and things like that. That all came through the spiritually elevated food that Abraham served his guests, which came through his heart of compassion and kindness. He had that much kindness that he was able to draw that down into the physical food that he offered. So therefore, when his Eshekayil would extend her hands to the poor to offer them bread, it will literally be bread from heaven. So the obvious question here, Yeshua is the bread from heaven. What does that even mean? What are the implications of that? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so next column says, Abraham did not begin his preparations early in the morning. Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Beautiful. Yep. Nice. So Abraham, Genesis 22, before the sun even came up, homeboy, homeboy, don't mean any slack on that because obviously he needs to have respect as Abraham, my father. But he got up and was like, I'm chopping wood. I'm saddling a donkey. I'm getting my two servants, by the way, out of bed because Who's awake before sunrise, right? He's like, hey, servants, wake up. Let's go. I got to go off my son. I mean, I got to go bless Hashem today, right? So he's doing all this stuff and he has to tell, make sure he doesn't tell Sarah, hey, by the way, I'm going to go offer Isaac today. Just, you know, I love you, babe. See you later, you know, kind of thing. He throw, may or may not have a son when I get back, you know, kind of thing. But anyway, he did that like early in the morning, like Akida, boom, got it, Hashem. I'm going to serve you because I love you that much. Hospitality, which is like his thing. He's like, no, nah, I'm not going to get up early to prepare for that. He says, wishing to maximize the spiritual effect of his meals he served, he waited until becoming actively involved in his charitable work. So, in other words, I'm going to wait until I'm literally engaged. And then at that point, I'm going to make preparations. It says by inviting the wayfarer into his home. It says only then would he be, would he give the sign to prepare the meal that would nourish his guests, both in body and soul. So just reading into this a little bit. When Abraham would see, okay, who do we have here today? What kind of nourishment and spiritual and physical uh, need that this person would have? Which is interesting that Abraham would wait until the person is literally connected with him. And then he'd be like, oh, this person needs da-da-da-da-da. Much like a mother 
um, not to be too graphic or anything, and just just as a disclaimer that hopefully this comes out right. A mother, when she's nursing, she has specific milk per child. So much so that if she is nursing multiple children at once, one side would give off a certain nourishment for that particular child. And then the other side would give nourishment for that particular child. Hashem literally has done that. Like he, he made that a thing with human biology. <laughs> I got to read this. You think about it. Hashem had to send every one of those people to him. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right? Like Yeshua says, I haven't lost any of the ones you've given to me. <laughs> Is sometimes it's crazy. It's just like, how come these people don't want to believe in Yeshua or be connected with him and attached, right? And it's just like, well, did Hashem send them to him? You know, like, who wants Hashem? Who wants Mashiach, right? Only the ones Hashem has chosen. Just like Israel, Jewish people were called a what? Chosen people. This is why not even all the Jews left Egypt. Only a fifth. The majority of the Jews died in Egypt during the plague of darkness because they didn't want to leave. Think about that for a second. Literally, you're born of the 12 sons of Yaakov and you're not going to leave Egypt when Hashem sends the Redeemer? Yikes, you know? But yet, people who weren't born of the 12 tribes, uh, they are like, get me out of here. I don't care where we going. Hashem says, go, let's go. Which, by the way, is Parsha Bamibar. Bamibar has the same gematria as Avraham, which is the gematria of 248. Why is that important? Because Hashem did this little thing called Lech Lecha to Avraham. He said two words, and Avraham was like, sure. Which really the two words are one word, because Lech, which means to go, and Lecha means go for yourself. So basically Hashem said, hey, Avraham, Go, go. And Abraham was like, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, so much so he told his family, he's like, all right, we're going with the Shem. And they're like, where are we going? He's like, wherever Shem tells us to go. Anyway, people did that to leave Egypt. And that's how the chosen people got into the wilderness because they were just willing to go where Shem told them to go. So what do we learn from this? The chosen of Hashem follow him beyond their own uh, understanding beyond their own comforts. This is why we read Parsha Bamibar before Shabbat. Literally, commentary says this because in order for us to receive the Torah, we have to be willing to come into the wilderness. We have to be willing to leave behind our possessions. We have to be willing to leave our place, just like our father Abraham. He left the comforts and the familiarity of everything to go with Hashem. Because if you think about it, what was the wilderness experience for us? It was unlike anything in this world. You mean to tell me Hashem can take millions of people, put them in a box, literally, when the clouds of glory surrounded us, top, bottom, all four sides, we're in a giant box. We're literally a moving ark, but we were a cloud. So the cloud that surrounded us in the wilderness turned us into a giant ark. Um, yeah, so 
just need to say a lot for myself real quick. So anyway, this happens, right? So if you try to think in your own mind, what does it mean to go on a trip? <laughs> I need to pack up. I'm going on vacation. It's going to be a week. I need this clothes. I need this food. I need these plans. I'm going to stay at this location. No. First of all, these people left out of Egypt, Jew and non-Jew alike. And some of them had things, some of them didn't. We literally left with the dough that was unfinished baking. We're out in the wilderness in a no man's land. There's plenty of water. If you don't have anything to sleep on, the grass that Hashem caused to grow from the well of Miriam, the rock of our salvation, would grow up into a couch or a bed for people so that they could have something to sleep on. The clouds of glory would carry your, your things. So whatever you carried away with you from Egypt, the cloud would load it up like a camel. Uh, food twice a day. The manna would come down at the evening and rise up with the dew of the morning. So that way for that whole day, you would have your meal. You have your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner all set right there from the previous night, by the way. Because the days start at night. So Hashem was like, okay, after sunset, here comes some manna. So by the time breakfast is ready, you know, there's your manna. Then not to mention that. What about clothes? What about shoes? Especially with children. We have a six-month-old and a plus a few weeks now. And he's already wearing clothes that are beyond the six-month mark. So just saying, if you're going to have children whether they're babies or toddlers or adolescents or whatever, they grow fast. <laughs> the Shem was like, you know what? Your clothes are going to grow with you. You're not even going to have to go to Walmart. You're not going to have to go to Target. Just clothes you got. They're not going to stink. Uh, they're going to grow with you. Uh, by the way, you're walking through mountains and sand and all sorts of ridiculous landscape. So your shoes that should wear out in like hours, um, they're going to last 40 years and they're not going to hurt your feet, right? That's just a few things. How do you tell a person that? Hashem showed up. He said, let's go. I can't tell you everything, but what I can tell you is this, this, and this. It's going to be okay. That's fine. Side note. Uh, Rabbi Anaba Shlita, he was saying that uh, some people, when we have the second wilderness experience, you'd be like, Hashem wants us to leave again? Okay, wherever we going, is there going to be Wi-Fi? You know, because sometimes people freak out. I don't have any Wi-Fi. What am I going to do? For me, I'm trying to train myself now. I love my tablets. I love my books. But when it's time for the final redemption, I'm just going to go. Like, Hashem will provide what I need, right? So anyway, I expanded that way too much. But just to iterate the point, when you go, as Hashem commands you to go, there's no quantifiable information available to really grab onto. You can't explain it. So the fact that you're willing to just go with Hashem, you're showing your chosenness. You're showing the fact that Hashem chose you because it doesn't make any sense, which means... If you're Jewish, it doesn't make any sense. If you're following Yeshua, it doesn't make any sense. But that's how it works because 
it's not supposed to. It doesn't make sense that one man who is steeped in idolatry, because the whole world is surrounding him with that, he decides, you know what? I'm going to teach the world about Hashem. I'm going to teach the world, you know what? 86 idolatry. Get that out of here. That does not make any sense. How is one man going to stand against the whole entire world and be like, yeah, you know, this idolatry thing, it's not good for you. Just leave it alone. And from him came millions of people. That's ridiculous. So, yeah, anyway, back to this point here. Says this perspective also sheds light on the behavior of Abraham's angelic guests, who, according to scripture, ate, quote unquote, the food that they were served in Genesis 18 8. There are two opinions. The Midrash brings down whether they really ate food or did they uh, merely pretend? The answer is yes, they actually ate and they also pretended to eat at the same time. Why and how is that possible? Tana Deve Eliyahu Rabbah 13 states the angels did actually eat what Abraham gave them. The truth, both opinions are correct because Bereshit Rabbah 48 14 states that they pretended to eat. But Tana Deve, Tana Deve Eliyahu Rabbah says that they actually ate. Commentary says the angels, like other creatures, have nutritional needs. Usually these needs are filled by the heavenly manna. Let's just go ahead and cut to the chase. This bread that are shit, that like a Freudian slip. This bread that Abraham asked Sarah to make ended up being manna. So that when he offered it to these angels, they could literally eat it, but not eat it at the same time. Because manna, though it is physical bread, is actually spiritual bread. And Shlomo, uh, Shlita, he always talks about this verse that Yeshua says, the forefathers in the wilderness ate bread and died. But the bread I'm offering you will be for eternal life. And I'm like, dude, you can't just go around quoting that verse when we talk about manna. <laughs> and he's like, well, okay, maybe I can't, but I'm just saying. And I'm like, okay, maybe you can, but I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, Sarah was able to make manna. Where in the world does manna come from? Oh, yeah, Shemayim. One of the seven levels of Shemayim to be in particular. Let's see if I can find this. We're going to go live time searching for a source. This may take a second, hopefully not too long. Don't want to belabor our time because I know it's late right now. But this will come from when I find it. Bezrat Hashem. Hashem may help me. This is going to come from the Kehot Humash. All right, come on now. Uh, particularly for Parsha Bereshit. Torah portions. Give me some Torah portions. Pulling out my Kehot Humash here. There we go. 
So a portion, their sheet. Where does manna come from? Because apparently, regardless of where it comes from, it can come from Sarah's tent when Abraham asked for her to make bread. I'm just, that's ridiculous. Okay. Um, okay, got the Umash opened up. Let's see here. I'm in Parsha Bereshit, y'all. Almost there. All right, here we go. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Blessing means increase. The blessing of the Shabbat was that the people was that the work people would do during the preceding six days would produce enough bounty to provide for the seventh day as well. This blessing was first witnessed with the manna. Okay, so we'll go back over here to the insights of Parsha Bereshit. Back to the overview. I think it's in the overview. It's either in the overview or the insights. Okay. I'll try the insights. Okay. Yep, here it is. This is Hasidic Insights, Parsha Bereshit, literally chapter one, verse one. Go figure. Talks about the seven levels of heaven. Here's what the seven levels of heaven are. I'm going to give you the English name because the Hebrew name is crazy, but it's good. It's just. Let's just get to the point. There's a level called curtain, firmament, millstones. Millstones is number three. Uh, abode, residence, resting place, clouds. Isn't it interesting that the seventh level of heaven on its way down to earth is the level of the clouds, which is what we see in the sky? Anyway, so go all the way up the chain here to the level called millstones. That's where manna comes from. Manna comes from the third level coming down from Shemayim. That's where manna comes from. Okay. So manna comes from the tent of Sarah but it also comes from one of the levels of the seven heavens. That's the food of angels. So when the angel showed up to the tent of Abraham and he went and asked Sarah to make bread, which turned into manna, they were actually able to really eat it physically and spiritually. The reason that was available is because usually the needs are filled by the heavenly manna described by King David as the bread of angels in Psalms 78, 25, because the holiness 
within it is their source of sustenance. Yoma 75b. So the bread of heaven has holiness as its ingredients. So therefore, when Yeshua says, eat of my flesh, he's saying, I need you to eat the holiness of the Torah. Because that is your nourishment, physically and spiritually. And it says, in Abraham's home, however, the angels found another form of manna, the kindness-laden, spiritually charged food that Abraham and Sarah would prepare for their guests. That food, though basically physical in nature, had the same capacity to nourish the ethereal and in that sense, the angels actually ate. We talk about trying to understand Yeshua sometimes, like where does the Torah and Yeshua meet? And who really is Yeshua? How do we really explain and describe him? Well, if you can explain manna to someone, now you can explain Yeshua. Just going out on a limb. Can we really explain manna though? <laughs> this is why Yeshua says, who do you say I am? But anyway, I'm going to reread this. The manna has different forms. There's a manna that comes from the, the levels of heaven that the angels eat. And it's like, this is the Kadosh, 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 Adonai Zavot. It's like holy bread. It's angel food. But there's also another form that comes from Chesed, particularly from Abraham and Sarah, which means there's a bread. That comes from the Torah, the Jewish people, the temple from Jerusalem. And that bread is chesed. And it says it is a spiritually charged food, basically physical in nature, but it has the same capacity to nourish the ethereal. So. This is where we talk about the pillars of Torah, which is acts of kindness, Torah study, and prayer. Those are like these three prongs, like, you know, how you plug in electrical devices. You have the two things, and then you have the ground and plug in the three-prong thing, like electrical stuff. Literally, that's what those things are. So you create these spiritual charges through your prayers, through your Torah study, and through your acts of kindness. And they basically can substitute for each other. That doesn't mean just go off and never pray again because you do so much acts of kindness. Because as you see, Abraham is the paragon of kindness, acts of kindness, right? But how much was he in prayer and how much was he in Torah study? They're all intermingled. So I just wanted to bring that down about how you turn uh, physical bread into spiritual bread. Okay, let's bring this home here. A couple more insights. Thank you all for tuning in to this being so late at night. Uh, let's go here. Okay, this is from the Lakute Torah of Shabbat and Parsha Bamibar. It says this. The spiritual quality 
of Ratzon Ha'elyon, which means the will that comes from above. So Elyon is about the, the, the one who is above the Most High. So the will of the Most High says the quality of that will is enclosed within the various laws and the mitzvot of the Torah. So in other words, the will of Hashem is clothed in the laws and in the mitzvot of the Torah. When a person engages in them, he or she thereby draws upon him or herself the spiritual benefit of that will, which can then openly illuminate and affect his or her soul. This is why the verse dealing with connecting the head with the skull, which is the lower will and the higher will, because, you know, in uh, Parsha Bar, when it says to take a census of the people, it literally says lift up the head. And it actually uses a form of Golgotha in the Hebrew text. Why was Yeshua offered on a place called Golgotha? So there's that. But anyway, um, it's taking an accounting of the people. Uh, it says, so you take the lower will and you raise it up to the higher will, specifically that this instruction was issued in the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting or the Ohel Moed, which, by the way, has the gematria of 156, which is the same gematria as Zion, a.k.a. Jerusalem also has the same gematria as Yosef, like the Mashiach ben Yosef. So uh, there's that. So it says that place is symbolized by the Torah. Because a tent surrounds and contains what is within it much as the Torah acts as a container for spirituality. So they just said to us in Lakute Torah for Parsha Bami Bar, that when you engage in the Torah, you draw upon yourself the spiritual benefit of the will of the Most High. And then that will illuminate and affect your soul. So in other words, when you take the container of the holiness of Hashem into you, you actually unleash and unlock its light over yourself. It impacts you. So this is interesting because Yeshua says, abide in me and I will abide in you. So the Torah is a tent, but we are also called a tent. Sha'ul Hashliach, he, he teaches us this through the writings to the Corinthians, that we have this tent that's perishable. We're going to take off the perishable and we're going to put on the immortal. So this body is likened to a tent. And it says in the Torah that when a man dies in his tent, Arsha Kukat, it's coming up in a little bit in Bar. That is the reference to Torah study that you're bringing death to your physicality, which is going to imbue your physicality with life. 
And that is the aspect of Torah, that it's going to bring in new life after you have a death to yourself. It was just mentioned earlier in our chat here. It says, kill your ego. That was commented in the chat. That's what the Torah teaches us. We are talking about mothering earlier. Even mothering says, I have this aspect of laying down my life for the sake of those who I love. Torah teaches us that. And here we are talking about this right now. It says, the Torah acts as a container for spirituality. Furthermore, the tent of meeting was called that because God said in Exodus 29, 43, I will meet with the Jews there. This is like the epitome of Yeshua saying, I and my father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Connected to Colossians 1.14, the image of the invisible God. It says the Hebrew word for I will meet is they know dati. This is similar to the word for I will be known, which is they know dati. So they know ati is I will meet and they know dati is I will be known. So the I will be known and the I will meet are connected. So knowledge of Hashem and the presence of Hashem are found in the same place. Each word uses the identical letters. They actually, they actually signify the same idea, which is attachment to Hashem. And it says the difference is that they know Dati, I will be known, indicates the attachment to God, which results from the intellectual, as in her husband is known at the gates. That's another verse from the Eshekayu. Feinoati, on the other hand, means the kind of meeting or union between the Jews and God's very self that only comes as a result of the will of the Most High. And it goes into saying that in order for you to reach that level of the will of the most high, you have to be helped. We talked about this before. The help of Hashem is called divine assistance. The Hebrew word Yeshua literally means divine assistance. So going down a little bit, it says, when we're engaged in Torah, the objective should not be to simply gain Torah knowledge. It should be attachment to God himself, who is contained within the Torah. So God can be contained within the Torah. The Torah says, become a Torah scroll. The Torah teaches us to become a Torah scroll. Which means the Torah teaches us to contain Hashem within our very beings. Crazy part about this, Judaism teaches that's not possible because 
the only way for us to even grasp or know Hashem is through the four letters known as the Tetragrammaton. Let's read it. Comment just came in. Nothing else can contain God, yet he allows the Torah to contain him. This is crazy. So Hashem is not corporeal, but yet he can be contained in something that is corporeal. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, was saying, Hashem, even the heavens and the earth can't contain you. And you're telling us to make a tent? Hashem was like, yeah, put this many pillars over here, that many over there, hang these curtains right here. That's where I'll be. Which means, if Hashem is going to be contained in something of physical creation, there's a protocol. You can't just go, here's my little shanty house. I came up with the design, and here's, here's where Hashem is going to dwell. The reason why that's important is because, let's go back to the second temple. When we, before King Herod, put his embellishments on the second temple, it was looking pretty rough. So the model of the second temple that we see in figurines or displays today, that was actually the temple that Herod uh, renovated. Because when we built the second temple, it was just kind of like, eh, whatever. So the crazy part about that is the second temple was seen to have a lesser glory and the Shekinah didn't really dwell there, which was crazy. But here we are talking if Hashem is going to dwell somewhere, there's these parameters in order for his dwelling to be there. Those parameters are the higher will and the lower will united as one, which means that we're gaining knowledge, but we're also seeking to be attached to Hashem, which is the beauty of a life of Torah is that you're going to learn a lot of stuff. But as you're learning a lot of stuff, does your attachment to Hashem equal or exceed that? Or you really want to be attached to Hashem. You don't really know much. You don't really have time to study. You don't really have time to learn. But when you do learn or whatever you get to hear, does that have the same weight as the level of attachment that you want to have to Hashem? It takes both. You know, this is why when the Talmudim were with Yeshua, that was one aspect. But who was really like engaging with Yeshua? Because we saw what happens if you don't. There was a person who was with Yeshua, but he wasn't really engaged with Yeshua. And what ended up happening? He ended up selling Yeshua, handing him over to the Gentiles. That. So may we not be in that category. May they be a signpost for us. I think I have one more thing to say. What do I want to do with this? I said I was going to talk about the name of Hashem, so I'm going to do that. Just a little side swipe. Shavile Pincus, a.k.a. Rabbi Pincus Friedman, Shlita, commented on Parshabat Hukotai from last week. And he was saying that the beauty of Adam was so great that the heel of Adam eclipsed the light of the sun in other words the lowest aspect of adam's being 
was brighter than the sun. Adam was filled with so much light that his beauty encompassed the entire universe. And even his foot was like, I'm brighter than the sun. The importance of that is when we ate from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, the prototype that we saw in Adam for our whole entire body to be light, you know, like a transfiguration. So in other words, Yeshua was able to manifest the light that Adam had before the tree of knowledge and evil incident, which what is that really saying? That's for another time. Now, after the fact, well, because we've eaten from the tree of the knowledge and evil, our bodies are not able to be filled with that amount of light anymore until the ultimate rectification, post-resurrection and all that, because of the bite of the serpent. So it says he will bruise our heel, but we will crush its head. In other words, the venom of the serpent, this, this proclivity for us to sin, now takes away the light that our bodies can be filled with. The only semblance of what we had the potential to be filled with is the fact that when we engage in the Torah, our heart and our minds can be permeated with God's light, but the rest of our body and its members can't. So that light doesn't get to extend out to our hands and our feet. The, the, we talk about this in the uh, confessional prayers. We have legs that run to do sins, right? There used to be the potential for us before sin was a part of the picture for our whole entire body and its members, all of the lust of the flesh that we talk about, the warring of the flesh against the spirit that did not exist because the light of Torah was able to permeate our whole bodies. Only now can our heart be filled with that. This is why Shaul tells us in Romans 7, and in my inner man, I desire to serve Hashem, but my outer man, boy, it's terrible. Can't deal with this. So um, that was in Shabila Pinkus last week. And so this whole thing about Bekukotai, toiling and striving in Torah, right now we can mitigate some of the effect of not having light in the members of our body through our toiling in the Torah. Our prayers, acts of kindness, being attached to Hashem, confessing, making teshuva, all those kinds of things. We begin to fill our bodies with light, but we don't ever really reach it until, obviously, uh, the resurrection. So that was a really neat uh, insight because it talked about the fact of the more you toil and Torah, the more your body does fill with light, but it doesn't um, stay there. And you kind of got to re- uh, refill it like daily and moment by moment kind of things but Yaakov Avinu Jacob the patriarch was actually able to do that he was actually able to fill his body with light and uh, that was the connotation of him switching his hands to bless Ephraim and Manasseh anyway there's a lot more that could be said about that but the takeaway that I wanted to bring that little bit of an insight up for is as we've been talking about the mother aspect the day of jerusalem that we're in now the 43rd day of the omer the banner over us is love laying our lives down being people of compassion that these things actually undo 
the sin of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil within us. And it's a constant fight that we're going to have to be engaged in. And so may we never give up hope. Shaul says, don't grow weary in doing good. That was, I guess, that was my point. Uh, okay. We'll reap a harvest soon, and may it be with the final redemption. Uh, the name of Hashem, Parsha Behar, where are we at? Behar. There it is. Okay. This is kind of hefty, but I think we can do it. Just go to Parsha Behar. All right. So the Kute Torah for Parsha Behar was talking about the verse that says, revere my Shabbat. Because there's two aspects of Shabbat. There's a higher and a lower aspect of Shabbat. And those are known as the two Shabbats that if we would keep, the Mashiach would come. And those two levels, just so we know, uh, it says this is... the higher and the lower. Oh, they don't go into it right there. It's found in Words of the Living God, chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. And um, basically, I'm going to read from over here. This is the, the print version of it. Lakute Torah. So just want to get to the point here. We have the, the doing. Okay, so one level of Shabbat is called the doing. So that's the first level. The second level is called the nullification. So there is the first part of the verse that says, and he rested from all that he had made. And then the next level says, he rested from all that he created. And it says, Hashem is saying that even this level becomes elevated on Shabbat, the worlds go through two elevations and nullifications on Shabbat, which are the two aspects of the Shabbat. So in other words, what we do for Hashem and then the heart posture in which we do things for Hashem, those are called the two levels of Shabbat. Because in our doing and our serving Hashem, Obviously, we want to do things in obedience, but we also want to approach it from a state of nullifying ourselves, killing our ego, like what we've been talking about before. <clears throat> okay, so with that all being said, it goes into talking about Hashem's name. And it says, before the world was created, there was only Hashem, blessed is he, and his great name. So the only thing that existed before creation was Hashem and his name. And then it says, these metaphors, God's light, God's name, 
They all lead to the same end and have the same purpose to understand the concept of God or to understand the concept of godly life force that animates the realms. So God's light, God's name is what animates life in all of creation. That's God's name does that. God's name is God's light. And it is, yeah, God's name is God's light. And that is the life force of creation. That's not Hashem. <laughs> That's his name. This is what Lakute Torah is bringing down. So then it says, and how it does not implicate God's essence at all. Each source simply expresses the same idea through its own terminology and metaphor. Scripture itself expresses this concept of a name. The very first mention of a name in the Bible is Genesis 2.19, where we read that God brought all the animals and birds he created to Adam to see what he would call them, and that whatever the man called each living thing was its name. One may wonder what was Adam's great accomplishment in naming all the creatures. It seems obvious that whatever one calls a previously unnamed thing becomes its name. Why does the Torah go out of its way to point that out? What was the case? However, the context provides insight into this episode. In Genesis 2.18, we're told God said it. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper as his counterpart. Then in the next verse, we find the statement that God brought every living creature before Adam who accurately named each. Finally, in Genesis 2.20, it is written, Adam named every domestic animal, bird of the sky, beast of the field, but Adam did not find a compatible helper. Then the Torah goes on to recount how God created Eve. So, the meaning of all this lies in the fact that in Hebrew, the concept of a name is much more than simply an arbitrary label for identification of something. As explained elsewhere, the letters which form the name of a thing in Hebrew, i.e., the holy tongue, are nothing less than the conduits by which divine life force is transmitted to the thing from God, bringing it into being in its unique form and maintaining its existence as a discrete entity. Thus, a Hebrew name, by definition, expresses the spiritual essence of the thing named. So with Yeshua being the name of Hashem, he is the expression of the essence of Hashem but not Hashem himself. Just the way when we talk about someone's name, we're not actually talking about the person, but we're talking about the essence of a person. The person himself is a whole different thing. Another way to put it, when a person is alone, they don't have to be called by name. Sometimes you don't even call people by name that you're with. Like if it's your wife, you say, hey, hon, or hey, wife, or something like that, or if 
your dad, you know, your children call you, hey, Abba, you know, they don't ever call you by your name, right? So you can be identified apart from your name. And this is another layer of seeing how Yeshua is the essence and the expression of Hashem, but not even beginning to give us the picture of Hashem, because again, the heavens and the earth can contain Hashem, like nothing in, cre nothing in creation can, but yet we can get his name and then we can begin to study his essence, grow in knowledge of him, and then be attached to him through that. So that was a, uh, a thing to be uh, shared that I wanted to bring down uh, because again, connected with Parsha and more about the whole aspect of blasphemy, the name of God being pierced. Yeshua is the name of God and he was pierced. So just that whole picture and that connotation. So Baruch Hashem, I think I'll put a pin in it and conclude there and uh, close with our brachim. Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet, Vechaye Olam Natan Betochenu, Baruch Atah Adonai, Noten HaTorah. May you have an excellent Jerusalem day. May the 43rd day of the Omer overflow your yearning and your purpose with Hashem. May you seek Him out and may you walk in the ways of truth and bring light into the world and continue to uh, spur on one another to acts of kindness and good deeds. And may we see Mashiach speedily and soon in our days. Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai.